Most of you know that you're already whole, at least in theory. It's something you see on Instagram and in inspiring postcards, things that read, you are enough. Still, there's often this disconnect in that theoretical knowing and in the beliefs and behaviors that actually drive your life. So as life is lifing, maybe certain events made you doubt and even disbelieve that wholeness. Those might have been things like a really bad breakup or a miscarriage or losing your job or sinking money into a bad deal, your body shape changing, some kind of a health crisis or many other things. So you try regaining control of your life and identity with perfectionism or a host of other addictions like workaholism, right? Or relying on booze a little bit more than you'd like to admit to yourself. And the voice in your head assures you that if you just push relentlessly some blessed day in the future, you'll get there. There being the solution to whatever part of your life feels sucky and inadequate right now. If you listen to the previous episode on the nexties, you'll know that there's no there there. <laughs> so today's guest, Dr. Shoshana Garfield, has a doctorate in psychology and is an advanced practitioner and trainer of emotional freedom technique, amongst many other impressive accolades and qualifications. She calls living for the someday a life deferred. Oh, that's good. In this conversation, you'll learn how to return to a state of wholeness by scraping away those layers and layers of lies that have distorted your enoughness like a funhouse mirror <laughs> without any of the fun, I hasten to add. But before we jump in, please note that Shoshana's story includes some references to extreme childhood trauma. If you're new here, welcome. I'm Dr. Mandy Leto, and this is Enough, the podcast, a show where overachievers, perfectionists, and everyone who is knackered by the hustle can find community and radically practical insights on finally making peace with our imperfect and marvelous selves. So let's get into the episode. I drop you right into the conversation as Shoshana and I are playing with what a life deferred actually is. Ready? Let's go. If I can just make myself better, if I can just achieve the next promotion, get the next bonus, get the next shiny object, grow my hair, change my hair, change my teeth, change my body, change my partner, move to a new place, bigger, better, more, more, next, 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 that then there will be time to rest. Then there will be time for joy. But in the moment, there's nothing worth celebrating. Mm -hmm. And that is a total lie. There are so many things I could respond to that with that. <laughs> because part of it is yet another meta pattern. They all interlock to make this cage and prison of bleakness of now. Because in this life deferred, there's an assumption that if I can only get circumstances right outside of me, or even inside of me, like if I can lose enough weight or whatever, then. So the structure is I will be happy when, or I will be less unhappy when, which again is part of the addiction pattern. I'll be happy when I get my next fix whether it's heroin or a promotion or a haircut or a boyfriend or a breaking up with your boyfriend, it's all the same pattern. Because in that moment of deferment, 
someone's disassociated from this. They're dissociated from themselves. They've disassociated, which are two different things. They've split off from themselves and they have uncoupled from that deep knowledge of who they are. And in that uncoupling, it's a bit like, do you ever have it when you're really, really hungry, but you've only got junk food around and you're like, well, just fuck it, I'll have that. But it's so unfilling and unsatisfying. You're kind of left feeling a bit sick. Perfectionism is junk food. It never fills you up. It's a lie. And it's a lie that will starve you to death because people aren't nourishing themselves with what they really need, which is simply alignment with who they really are, which segues right back to recovery. And what recovery is, it's knowing who you really are, which is magnificent, perfect, and always perfecting. But because you're already perfect, the perfecting then becomes this lighthearted play, not a game like game theory, win-lose, but a game like play where everybody wins. So there's nothing to fight except to play fight. So it's not really that big a deal. And there's mm -hmm. nothing to lose. So it doesn't matter if the deal goes tits up or their promotion goes south. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Like, oh, darn it. Oh, I really wanted that. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't and say next time. Pardon? Maybe next time, maybe next time. And Or not, or yeah. where's the gift in this? Yeah. What if everything's a gift? What if being in alignment with who you really are is a form of pronoia? Pronoia being, Everything is happening for me on my behalf to my benefit, even the stuff I really don't like. You know, and you and I have both had stuff that we really don't like happen in our lives from early on all the way through, whether, you know, for me, abusive husband, you know, for addictions, in, including being fat, which is why I think about food a lot. Also, I'm Jewish, so I think about food a lot. <laughs> so I'm really curious to try to get a handle on. Is there a way of, and I'm using air quotes here, is there a way of recovering from these ways that we are so critical of ourselves? Is there a way of recovering from the sense of not enoughness? Is there a way of recovering from perfectionism, which is kind of a tool that we use against ourselves? As you said, it's, it's, a, junk, it's a junk food thing where we're always left with the kind of malnourishment of the soul, which is my favorite new line. Uh, is there a way for us to recover from this? That's a paradoxical question because it's yes and no at the same time. Not like Schrodinger's box, yes and no, until you look at it. It's always a yes, no, because it assumes that there's a problem. So in certain, from a certain angle, all of recovery is a big, huge red herring because when you're really grounded in pronoia and who you really are, you never have any problems and there's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to not do. There's only a flowing of what feels better and to what feels better, a permission of being in the body, except when you're not, when you forget for those moments, because we all do every day. I certainly do. I forgot this morning and yelled at my husband and which I quickly apologized, you know, hasten to add, but we all forget. And it's just, it's a, but it's a paradigm shift. I forgot within that baseline of knowing in my bones that all is well, and there's nothing to attack and there's nothing to overcome and there's nothing to vanquish. There's only this deep allowing of who I really am, which is going to be like it is for everybody, magnificent, powerful, mm -hmm. kind, 
above all, kind and playful in equal measure. So what I'm hearing you say is in this yes and no, this feels to the perfectionist in me and to the the one who wants you to 10 step plan this for us. This feels really unsatisfying because I'm like, oh, here we have this brilliant expert and I'm hoping she's going to give us a plan. But of course you can't because we're already whole and this whole podcast is about the journey coming back to our wholeness. And the fact that perfectionism has kind of kinked the hose of us knowing that we are already enough. Spoiler alert, we're already enough. And, <laughs> and it's just getting stuff out of the way, if I'm hearing you right, to remind us that we are safe to be in the now. We don't need to defer happiness. We don't need, we can buy the shiny thing if it gives us joy, but not doing it in a transactional way that it's going to give me worth or the promotion will give me worth. So I'm wondering if we can take this conversation in this way of how with somebody who is riddled with these kinks in the hose of knowing our wholeness, how do we get to this nirvana-esque state that you (laughs) describe? The shiny thing, the promotion, the achievement, those things don't make us feel anything. They're like aid de memoirs that connect us to who we really are, but we misassign the causality. I asked Shoshana to explain how the things we desire, the car, the Caribbean holiday, the new tent, the backpack, the bag, the latest gadget, you name it, whatever your jam is. How can those things be healthy reminders of our magnificence and our wholeness instead of false dopamine-driven promises of needing to acquire the next thing, stat? Sidebar, if you haven't already listened to the previous 13-minute episode on the nexties, please go back and check that one out. So this whole thing of needing the next hit, the next acquisition, it's always been a challenge for me to wrap my head around. So I'm fascinated by Shoshana's perspective on how we can frame this in a healthy way. So Dr. Garfield, how are the things that we desire a reminder of who we really are? One, because who we really are is a constant. More constant than the speed of light, because actually the speed of light is variable if you really dig deep into the science. That's another point. Who we really are is a constant. That is joy, magnificence, play, kindness, strength, and all more of those yummy things. So when in our self-beating-up paradigms, like perfection, allow ourselves respite, of a Chanel bag, a candlelit bath, to enjoy a promotion for five seconds, maybe three, maybe one, maybe a day. We've allowed the detritus to clear away for those moments, to allow us access to who we really are. But we're just calling it something else. It's a little bit, that misascribing is a little bit like how People would walk around in medieval times with posies, little bunches of flowers to ward off plague because they thought the plague was due to icky odors. It was a misunderstanding of 
where the plague really came from. Didn't change the fact of rats, but it sure did help the marketing of posies. That is a brilliant example. Yeah. So the posy could be the sports car or the Rolex or the Chanel bag, and we're holding on to it to stave off all that, you know, that it will give us some sort of protection or it's like our secret, our secret ingredient is if I dress like this or appear like this, or, you know, buy this thing, then, then that is okay. I'm getting what you're saying. Right. So I really like my car. And it doesn't matter what car I have. The fact is, I really like my car. So if I had bought my car and thought, you, you know, pick a car that's really cool, and we'll just use that as an example. Uh, Jaguar is the first one that comes to mind. Jag, F-type, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not a car person, so may, I was the wrong person. It's a sports car. <laughs> it's F-type. a sports car. It goes fast. <laughs> it looks like a penis. It's really cool looking. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Let's say I've got this F-type Jag, right? If I were buying it from that place of perfectionism, like now I'll just allow myself this respite that the joy of the car would fade, that it would go back to the normal because my normal is about that filter of beating myself up all the time with perfectionism. Mm -hmm. But when you're grounded in who you really are in that foundation of recovery, even though we forget every day who we really are, no matter how much work you do, blah, 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 blah. I go to that car every day. I'm like, oh, I love my car. I so enjoy my car. I love getting into it. I love finding it in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. I love getting in it. I love turning it on. I love the sound of it. I love the way it handles. I love how fast it goes. I love it. I love it. So you're not saying don't buy nice things because I can imagine people who have taken joy in that. Oh, So talk us through unkinking that hose like, oh, so now I'm not supposed to buy a Jaguar F-type or I'm not supposed to buy a Chanel bag or a Rolex Mm -mm. or or go to that fancy schmancy restaurant anymore. Oh, please do. Please do. The thing is, is that you're not getting good value for money because you're buying it like like a shot of crack the last five minutes instead of from that place of pronoia from that place of knowing who you really are, where these things around you bring wonderment and joy for the entire duration of your engagement with them. Mm -hmm. That's all. One way to stop living a life deferred then is to allow yourself the moment of sinking into that deep, hot bath or whatever your joyful purchase or holiday or experience is, because you will get true joy from it. It's an aid memoir, to use Shoshana's words, of your own magnificence, meaning it's never about the bath or the bag or the car or whatever your jam is. I'm wondering if it's kind of like that old ad line, I'm worth it, because I'm worth it. Do you remember that? It's a completely different energy than if I buy or do this thing, it'll make me worth it for a few precious dopamine-fueled moments, and um, then I'll need to do it all again shortly to fulfill my next hit. Totally different vibe. I'm going to take some time to ponder Shoshana's perspective on this. I, I like it, and I hope that you'll find a lot of these granola bar moments in these podcasts, things that you take away and chew on and then come up with your own perspective. 
Okay, so next we jump back into the conversation where Shoshana tells us a bit of her own story. One of my earliest memories is of a nightmare, literally a nightmare, where I have no face, no eyes, no nose, no mouth, just a flatness that I present to the world for them to write upon, to project upon. I was obliterated, or rather my sense of self was utterly obliterated. I honestly don't have the words to describe the devastation of my earlier experiences. To put it in a tiny nutshell without going into detail, my mom rented me out to pedos and they, they weren't gentle. It was in fact torture, like Amnesty International type stuff, torture. I was only four, it was kind of formative, except where it's not. But I didn't understand that for a really, really, really long time. So I thought I had been utterly obliterated and written by them, created by them. And I was just a wind up good girl toy who got good grades. The first female in my family to ever finish high school. The first person in my family to ever go to university. And I went to a doozy. I didn't just go to any uni. I went to an Ivy League. Of course I did. Certainly the only one to get a PhD. But in between university and the PhD, some of the magic started to happen. I had been in therapy for a really long time, 25 years on the couch. And you can ask any of my ex-husbands, I needed every minute of them. And then I found energy psychology during the PhD. And that's when the insights really started arriving. Someone would ask me, you know, if therapy were an object, what would it be? And I said, it was a rock, a rock that you pick up and look under and just look at all the creepy crawlies and the dark loam and the rich earth, that there are gifts under the rocks, gifts in the caves and the caverns. Mm. The terror of standing at the mouth of those dark caverns, but knowing there was no way out except through, because what happened to me was so extreme, so extreme. I didn't have the luxury that a lot of people have of getting by, of squishing it down enough to deploy plans of success. Although I clearly was a perfectionist. I mean, doing what I did and going to an Ivy League uni, seriously, if I had been a serial killer, everybody would have said on like a Netflix special, and we can see why Shoshana, blah, 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 right? But I chose a different path. How I did, I don't know. That's another topic of discussion. But I knew, I knew, I knew the only way out was through and it was through underground, or what I thought was underground. So I went into those caves with my faceless face to meet my demons, year after year after year after year, decade after decade after decade. 
once I found energy psychology, started with emotional freedom techniques, EFT. It took about five years for me to be completely free of post-traumatic stress. And still have health impacts from having been tortured. Being tortured kind of sucks and it leaves fingerprints in the body in different ways, even when there aren't visible scars that you can might see with usual clothing. And what I found in those dark caves was something so beautiful. Every demon I met turned into a friend. Every friend had a piece of me I thought was gone forever. And every piece of me that I recovered helped me feel more and more whole. And it was a little bit like an Arctic dawn, you know, looking, is it a bit grayer than it was yesterday? I don't know. It takes like six months for the sun to come up. And it's only a metaphor because once it dawns, it's the sun's always there. But as I look back and yes, that sky is definitely got a horizon now and the sun's coming up. What I realized is that all that brokenness, I used to think I kind of carried myself around in a bloody cheesecloth bag, little pieces of me. But actually, I wasn't like a glued together vase. Who knew? And sometimes people, I forget what it's called. There's a Japanese art where a vase breaks and you, you line it with gold and the kind of, it's, it's beautiful the way it is. And it's a kind of metaphor for being broken and repaired. It's not that at all. That is a false recovery. It's beautiful art, beautiful art, exquisite, but a very wrong-headed metaphor. What I realized was that actually I was seamless. That recovery is a process of uncovering. There's nothing to glue together. Just like you said earlier, we are already whole. And all the uselessness and not enoughness and worthlessness that we thought defined us, those were all illusory, like popping little balloons or demons taking off masks and they're, ta-da, I'm your friend, surprise. There are no enemies. There's nothing to fight. There's nothing even to get rid of. Just bits you find to love up. And then they evolve. Thank you so much for sharing that. Joyful to do so. Mm. To stop living a life deferred, a someday that, spoiler alert, never comes, and bring yourself into the now, it requires being able to sit with yourself and all of your feelings. <laughs> Martini, anyone? This is why chronic busyness is so seductive, or shopping, or alcohol, or exhaustion even. It means you don't really have to be with yourself in the present. Why be in the discomfort of sitting in your mucky diaper, emotionally speaking, when you can numb out and live a life deferred to someday? I ask Shoshana to share a practice that you can try if this episode is resonating. Let's get to it. 
What's the first thing you need to get out of a trap? A plan or someone to help? Um, I don't know. I feel like this is a trick question, Shoshana. <laughs> it is a trick question. It's to know you're in a trap. To know you're in a trap. Fair enough. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. When you go right to doing and planning, you skip the most important first step, which is the perfectionist dilemma. Right? What do I got to do to get out? What do I got to do to fix this? Ah. <laughs> Who do I have to hire? What do I have to throw money at? Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And you might have to throw money at stuff and you might have to plan. In fact, you probably do because therapy ain't cheap. And when you go to this spelunking supply shop, a lot of that ain't cheap. Some of it is, and you could do a lot of it for free, but that's you know an, another strand of the story. But no spelunking toolkit is going to help you navigate the caves unless you know how to use the tools right. Because if you're not allowing the journey and you're fighting the walls, then you're just going to get stuck in some dead end. And you won't meet the demons that have the gifts for you. You'll just meet demons that tear your face off. So are the demons those behaviors? Like you said, you had four addictions. Were those the demons that you were talking about? No, I had so there, there are sets of demons that I have. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. it turns out that all four of my addictions, perfectionism, workaholism, kind of wrapped up into one. Uh, you don't get the grades I had to get into Dartmouth with the family I came from, unless there's a perfectionism whipping me along. I was obese, so there was eating, there was shopping. Oh yeah, sex, because you don't come from the, <laughs> from the background I've got without some issues around sex and sexuality. Could have gone either way. I could have gone totally abstinent and celibate or it could have been a hoe. I went for the hoe. And I say that kindly without judgment of myself in any way. But it turned out all four of those addictions were the same demon. It was the demon of perfectionism with on the one hand, I can outrun this. That's the false promise of perfectionism. If I can just do that or get that, I can stay ahead of this misery curve. And the other addictions were, I can't stay ahead of this misery curve. But there's an assumption in both of them that the misery curve is the truth. That has something juicy and true to say about me and who I am and the hopelessness of it all. None of that was true. So knowing you're in a trap. No, and being open to the patterns. Knowing the patterns aren't who we are. Whether they're patterns of behavior or when I say feeling, patterns of feelings, we can get physically addicted to feelings as well. Because what all these addictions do is keep us in either a state of normalcy. I will feel happy if I will feel less miserable if I can just do this thing. So I'm chasing the fix of the thing. So what I'm practicing is chasing the fix. So that's a behavior pattern, not an identity. And I'm chasing the fix because of the feelings of misery. And my whole neurology is geared towards releasing neurotransmitters of misery, the molecules of emotion of misery. And I don't know how many, if there's even a teaspoon of neurotransmitters we produce a day, but we do have a limited capacity. So whenever we feel something, it's like we have some emotional foreman. I'd like to call mine Mo. And Mo goes, hey, you guys, make more of this, whether it's misery or joy. 
and it's it's like money. It'll buy you one thing or buy another. It depends on what store you go into, right? It's it's completely neutral. It's just the mechanics of it, right? And there are spiritual issues as well, but there is a mechanics of this, right? So we get into these grooves of feeling. So we can get sucked into them, sucked into feeling like we get sucked into thinking the restaurant, the car, the job, the partner, getting rid of the partner will fix something for us. We're chasing a fix by trying to fix. It's self and addiction. They're all the same demon, kind of a multi-faced demon in a certain way. And that was part of my recovery journey with all these demons collapsing into one, which is the illusion of who I am. And when I was willing to be brave enough to reach up and take that mask off that last demon, what I found was something radiant. I found myself. Does that answer the question? It does. And the practical part of me wants to understand, is this something that happens in therapy? Is this something that someone can practice doing on their own that if they're like sitting there poised with their pen, like, how do I begin this? Is there a way to make that tangible for us? Yes. Yes. So this is the toughest thing I ask all my clients to engage. It's an invitation. It's not a demand. I don't make demands in my work because that's kind of counterproductive. So I give everybody the, I love you mirror exercise. Oh, it's hard. I did it when I first invented this for myself. It took me three months before I didn't cringe in doing it. Okay. So when I say it's hard, it's hard. But one of the gifts of perfectionism is discipline, right? So keep going, keep going. So you look at yourself in the mirror. Mm -hmm. You can look in both your eyes. You can look in your left eye. You can look in your right eye. You might do all three and you say your name. Like you're speaking to you in the mirror, like you are there in the mirror, you would say, Mandy, I love you. Mm -hmm. And then you just notice what you notice. For my first three months, I noticed this tightening behind my eyes, deep inside my skull. And so I would use emotional freedom techniques and just tap on that. We just take one minute to do the exercise, but a lot of courage to look myself in the mirror and say it. Some of my clients can't even do that. They do the exercise, like they look and then they tap on, I can't even say the stupid thing and that's fine. And do the tapping round and I will uh, give you a handout so you can have the handout downloadable for everybody who listens. Great, Absolutely free gift, love you, use it or not as you wish, engage or not as you wish. And that helps wash away the falseness, the dirt, the grime. Worthiness is dirty. We all know it. We feel squeamish when we really engage it. It's kind of tarry, sticky, and slimy, and gross. Something really unwholesome about it. Feel repelled by it. And then with that fear that that's who we really are, Of course, we're gonna build up defenses against that, including perfectionism. But what this helps to do, if you only do one thing, this washes away a teeny little bit of it every day. Of the unworthiness, of the supposed unworthiness. Yes, yes, exactly. The illusion of all this 
horror. The feelings are real. It's just not based on anything true. Shoshana, I ask every guest to lay a brick of wisdom on this journey back to our wholeness. It could be a phrase, a quote, a word, a mantra, a thought, anything that's on your heart this moment that you would like to leave with listeners. And I invite you to open to the possibility that you live in a world of abundance and it is your choice what abundance you dial into. If it's an abundance of perception of lack or an abundance of filling up with who you really are, it is your choice. And it's a choice you're making in every moment and a choice that can change moment to moment, little by little, millimeter by millimeter, increment by increment, and to know that it is possible to embrace the abundance of the deep truth of who you already are, that all is already well. You are magnificent. All is well, no matter what. Ooh, wow, what an episode. Who do you know who needs to hear Shoshana's wisdom? Please share it with them. Thank you so much. I'm also so deeply grateful for your five-star reviews on Spotify and also for your reviews on Apple Podcasts. Keep them coming. Thank you so much. From this episode, do you remember that powerful mirror exercise from episode 24? That was Shoshana's brilliant husband, Dr. Sasha Mitrovanov. And in case you've missed that one, do head back and listen to that one, episode 24. I hope Shoshana's powerful story has inspired you that no matter what your history, the deep inner work works, folks. It's about consistency, so please stay on the path. Let's meet up again here in two weeks. And in the meantime, head over to my website at mandyletto.com and sign up for my micro blog, The Juice, to keep you going between podcasts. And let's hang out on Instagram if we're not already connected. Thank you so much for listening. This is Mandy Leto signing out for Enough, the podcast. <laughs>